Welcome to the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Noisley. Hello everybody, it's Journal Club time again, Journal Club, for the February number of this year's Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. And we have with us again from the Education Committee, Andreas Janke, who will help us understand why his team have selected two articles in particular from that number's harvest that are particularly worth discussing, particularly worth sharing and emphasizing among the many other good things that are there. Our first one, I think, is Prevalence and Risk Factors of Functional Gastrointestinal Disorders, a Cross-Sectional Study in Italian Infants and Young Children. Now, there's six or seven Italian authors, all from Napoli, and then there are three authors from Amsterdam. And I have no idea uh, what the relative contributions were or are, but um, it's Espigan, and we cross the borders, we traverse the Alps, and we're here for you. Andreas, tell us about this study. Well, I like... First of all, nice um, to be here with you again. And, um, well, you're right. Um, Aspen is an international um, society and we work across the borders. And even in so important and complicated topics um, as um, functional gastrointestinal disorders. I mean, many people are talking about inflammatory bowel disease um, and all kind of other diseases that we have some kind of specific treatment for. This is easy. But we also need to tackle the diseases that we do not really understand, but we still need to come up with uh, some solutions. And one of the major problems in pediatric gastroenterology are these functional intestinal disorders. Functional intestinal disorders. So we've got the ones where they, where they throw up, we've got the ones where they have belly pain, and we have the ones in which stooling pattern is abnormal with either constipation or diarrhea. Have I got Absolutely. that right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. And um, I mean, there, there, there are quite a number of studies out there, but most of the studies are focusing on, on more older populations in, in children. And what's kind of unique in this study is that the authors took infants who presented to the local pediatrician for just a regular um, visit on assessing the, develop the development of the child. So um, we have no kind of selection bias, no children presenting to a hospital um, with already complaining about abdominal pain. So we have some kind of real-life baseline prevalence of functional intestinal disorders. And this is even more the case because more than 95% of the parents, patients who has been asked to fill the questionnaires also actually filled them. And they did it together with the local physician. So there was also some help in interpreting the different um, disorders like functional constipation, cyclic vomiting, and so on. So I believe that 
we have a real nice baseline picture what's going on in Italy and most probably in most other European countries with this study. Of course, it would, the study would have to be repeated in other parts of the world and other parts of Europe. And this study is really directed, I think, toward helping pediatric GI practitioners counsel the primary caregivers to let them know, hey, uh, this is what the distribution of these disorders is like, and this is the set of factors in the child's background and the family's background that contribute or do not contribute. And if I've read it correctly, there's something extraordinary in the associations that they didn't find with functional gastrointestinal disorders. Yeah, I absolutely agree. What, what I was really surprised to read here is that the social emotional problems in the family like parents being divorced or they had to move for some kind of violence or other issues had no impact on the prevalence. So this basically means that we cannot just go to the parents and say, it's just the stress-related disorders of the child. So do not fight so much and the belly pain is going away. Um, stop your divorce and um, your baby will, won't have functional constipation anymore. So obviously there are other factors. And what's surprising is that being the only child and also being the firstborn is a major risk factor for functional gastrointestinal disorders from a social environmental perspective. And I mean, one could argue if as a child you have too much of the attention of your parents, this might be also a problem similar to having not enough attention. We all have seen those collections of baby pictures in which the first child has every minute of every day documented. The second and the third, and by the time the fifth child comes along, the parents are running so hard to keep up that they can't pick up a camera. At least that's what it was like in my family. Yeah, so think, I'm ready to, yeah. I was, and I was the, I myself, and those who know me will not be surprised. I myself was the first pancake, the first child in whom they tried out what it was to be parents. As they said, if it seemed to work, we kept doing it. If it didn't seem to work, we tried something else with the next one. Parents get more relaxed as they come along, don't they? Yeah, yeah. This could be one major factor which could explain this observation. But there are also some, some other interesting issues. For example, what I was really surprised about is the huge regional difference in functional constipation. Tell me more about that. So in, in Sicily and in Lombardia, more than 20% of the, of the toddlers had functional constipation, but only 4.8% in Campania. So there's no explanation for that, but maybe there's some kind of different diet. Maybe the, the toddlers and infants get more fibers in Campania compared to Sicily and um, Lombardia. So I think we need to think about 
these regional differences and maybe the authors will go and further evaluate dietary factors that might be an explanation for this huge difference. As a overall, it seems to me, many of the kids weren't getting enough fiber according to what we consider now appropriate base rates. Yeah, that's that's correct. And the authors also refer um, in their paper to a recent study from a from another Italian group um, that quite nicely demonstrated that the fiber intake is only about 70 to 80 percent of what um, is actually recommended. And this is mainly because we process our food not in the correct way, I believe. For example, I have many parents coming to my to my um, to my office, and they tell me, "Well, my child, it eats enough vegetables and fruits. Why does it have con functional constipation?" And if you start talking with them, it becomes clear. They give cucumbers, but they peel them. They give apples, but they peel them. And if you peel the vegetables and the fruits, you reduce the number of fibers quite substantially. So this could be an explanation why the amount of fibers are not sufficient for good bowel movement anymore. I'm going to put on my patient's mother's hat and say, but doctor, wax on the cucumbers and pesticide residues on the tomatoes. What am I supposed to do? Yeah, yeah, obviously you need to buy bio. Oh, that's um, expensive. Yeah, I mean, buy less. I mean, I, I don't want to get into, into political waters here, but maybe if you buy a little bit less meat, you can afford buying biological vegetables. Or maybe you just have to eat a little bit less, but then more quality. I mean, it's... It's difficult. Well, if, it'll, if it'll help, if it'll help my kid feel better, I'll do it. Yes, great. great. <laughs> okay, that's the way to go. Yeah. Is that the take-home message then that that there are fewer socio that the socio-political correlates of functional gastrointestinal disease that we have assumed? I'm unhappy, so my stomach hurts. Are not borne out by this study in an yeah. unselected population and You're that right. it would be a good idea for us all child or adult to eat more fiber yes absolutely i would say first of all emotional and family stress is not a main driver in functional gastrointestinal disorders during the first four years of life mm -hmm. second we need more fibers and third we have quite a substantial variation, regional variation in the prevalence of specific functional disorders, which should be always in the back of the head of the pediatrician approaching. Of the pediatrician and of the specialty pediatrician to whom children with these disorders tend to be referred. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, it's time for us to move along, I think, to the second of the two articles that you recommended, which comes from across the water in Cincinnati, 
prevalence of gastrointestinal symptoms and impact on quality of life at one-year follow-up of initial attack of acute pancreatitis. Yeah, this is, this is quite an interesting study. I mean, it has quite a number of limitations, but um, since it is the first study trying to tackle this problem, I think it's worth talking about it. How do you so, define the problem? What, is, what, what was this meant to address? I saw it as, a, as an attempt to see whether what happens with adults is the same as what happens with kids. Yes, I agree. So, um, but in the past, in many situations, there was the assumptions that what's, what's true for adults is also true for, for children. But um, in, in many cases, this has proven to be wrong. So that's why I believe it's important that we have specific studies for children to see whether they feel and um, experience the same problems as adults do. And I mean, acute pancreatitis is not a very common disorder in, in children. I mean, they do not drink alcohol, they do not smoke regularly. So, so it's more about uh, obesity and also um, hereditary um, disorders that cause acute pancreatitis. And I think it's important that we focus also on these little bit more rare diseases. And what they show, even though it's only a single center study with um, 74 patients and also only about one third filling out the last um, quality of care questionnaire is that the, the, the abdominal well-being after an acute pancreatitis is in some way impaired for at least a year. And I think it's important to transport or give this message to the parents and say, look, which height is okay now, but it, it will take another year until your baby or child is f completely fine again. So there might be some, some minor problems like a little bit of belly pain and um, abdominal discomfort, or it might also vomit a little bit more than usually. I think it's, so in the adult situation, you have the, the patient who cares and the patient basically, well, it's the same person, but this is different. In, in, in pediatrics. So you have the patient and you have someone who cares and who has worries and who does not experience the pain or discomfort him or herself. And for those, it's important to give some kind of advice and see and, and tell them, see, um, there might be some, some discomfort over the next year, but this is normal. This is part of the, of the process to getting healthy again. And it's not, I, I'm now I'm put, again putting on my patient's curer hat. It doesn't mean that he has recurrent pancreatitis, my boy. Yeah, not necessarily. So I think it could, or it can relieve a little bit more the worries of the parents that um, the same episode is starting again if there are some kind of minor discomfort. Of course, we should not say um, to the parents, well, look, um, if there is um, severe abdominal pain, do not worry about it. You do not see, have to see a physician. Of course not. But these minor issues, 
might and this might also help the family to be a little bit more relaxed about the problem and to go along with it more easily. I was impressed, unfortunately not very favorably impressed, by the fact that um, only a third of the parents who filled, thing, who filled out that quality of care score. And I thought to myself, well, I guess that's understandable. You, you have to um, go through another set of maneuvers with these doctors, and our kid is fine. Why do we have to revisit this? And they would just put that questionnaire into the circular file. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. the, the idea that care was substandard or care was inadequate or that the patient didn't feel well may be overrepresented. Yeah, I agree. So there might be this, this bias in the study. I, you're absolutely right. So I also believe that we desperately need to to get more data on that from different centers to get a more more precise picture on on the problem but at least it's a start it's a start it's a start and with every start of course there comes an end and we're approaching that end for this podcast sorry to say time is running out and uh, I guess I'd like to ask you, is there any aspect of these these articles on which we haven't touched or into which we haven't gone sufficiently deep? As you think back, what other points of interest are there in these articles that you'd like to elevate and hold up for us? Well, actually, I think we, we covered um, most of the important points. And I think there's not much more to add. I recommend everyone to actually read the articles themselves. And um, I also recommend reading the whole JPGN edition on February, since we only picked two of um, quite a bundle of interesting topics. We clearly have been berry picking. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot more meat in this egg than the two spoonfuls we've taken. I completely agree with you. I have to warn other readers, the article from Cincinnati is tough going. So have a cup of coffee, sit down, and learn. Andreas, thank you very much for being the docent and walking us through these two. Um, I hope to take part in another JPGN Journal Club soon. Yeah, I would say see you next month. Okay, then. Bye-bye now.